And we're entering into the third division of the book, which is the things that will be hereafter. And this is a very majestic scene, uh, to say the least. I ask if you will, stand with me. If you're not able to, God understands that too. But if you're able to stand, um, let's turn to Revelation 4, verse 1. And John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And at this point I might just say hallelujah. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings. And voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is to come. And when those beasts give honor and glory and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created glory to God this is the word of the Lord we're going to talk to you this morning I'm going to talk to you this morning about the one who sits on the throne in heaven right now there is one who sits on the throne he is the highest authority in the universe and he is almighty God preacher Larry would you Give us the pleasure of praying for us this morning. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture today, we come in worship, realizing that Thou art holy. Yes. And Lord, as we approach you, we pray, Father, that we might come <coughs> with great reverence. We pray, Father, that we would pay close attention as this passage is proclaimed this morning. Because we know that it's the heart of our faith. We pray, Lord, that you bless us today. Bless all who have come. And we pray, Father, that you help us, Lord. Be careful as we enter into this time of worship. Lord, be with those that are not able to be. Be with those that are suffering. We pray that you help them, Lord, to get well. We pray, Father, that you be with those that Concerned. Help us, Lord, to always remember them. We'll do all that we can to bring them into thy fold. Father, we pray that you bless us today in all that we do. Forgive us of our sins. And we ask in thy name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence. Let's go to slide number one. Now, here we have the divine outline of the book of Revelation. Found in Revelation 119. You can turn in your Bible if you want to, or you can look up here on the screen. But I want you to notice there's three divisions here. This is the outline of the book. And regardless of people's position about the rapture and so forth, almost all scholars, there's a consensus among them that this is the outline of the book. The first thing is the things which you've seen. That would be chapter 1. That would include the vision of the glorified Christ that John saw on the island of Patmos. And he says, and the things which are. And we spent about two months going over that. That's chapters 2 and 3. That is the seven churches. God's message to the seven churches. And then he says, the things which shall be hereafter or after these, depending on your translation. 
Now, in the Greek text, the phrase hereafter is meta tauta. Okay? Let's all let's say that together. Meta tauta. You're, you're learning Greek one week at a time. How cool is that? Not even having to pay for it. You're getting to audit the class. But meta tauta. Now, those things that are hereafter, that's going to be chapters 4 through 22. But all of that from this point on is future. Now, there'll be a little flashback uh, here and there. But by and large, everything is in the future. So if you want to invite your friends to church that don't, that don't know the Lord, you say, once you come to church next week, our pastor's going to predict the future. And they, you know, they'll think I'm just coming here and be like, oh, okay, you're going to win the lottery today or something. But I'm going to be predicting the future because it's already written beforehand. It's already written beforehand. Now, Revelation 4.1 opens up with that phrase, exact phrase. After this, which is in the Greek, what? Metatala. I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, or come up here. And I will show you the things which must be hereafter. What is the Greek phrase there? Metatala. So I think in large flashing lights, God is saying, We have entered into the things which shall be metatala, hereafter. It's in the very first part of the verse, and at the end of it. And I underlined up here on the screen, for those of you that can see, notice it says things which must be. This is the speaks of the sovereignty of God. God is in control of history. Things are not just randomly happening. When you look at the news and you see Russia and, uh, and Iran and, and all these major players uh, from Ezekiel 38, understand that these things must happen. When you see the apostasy of the church, understand that these things must happen. And they're all part of God's plan. But the good news is that God is on the throne. Amen? Amen. Alright, let's go to the next slide. Now let's describe those things which be, must be hereafter. It's uh, basically three different sections here. Uh, chapters 4 and 5 are events that happen prior to the tribulation period. Before the tribulation. So, that clues us into something. And it's, this may blow your mind if you've never heard it before. But it opens up the possibility that there may be an interval of time between the rapture and the tribulation period. I wouldn't start a new church over or anything. But, but as we'll see, the church is already in heaven before the first seal is opened. And rewards have been given out. So there may be an interval of time there. And you say, why would that matter at all? Well... Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't. But um, a lot of people think, well, this has got to happen, or that's got to happen, or this has got to happen. Understand the rapture is an imminent event. The only sign that needed to happen happened in 70 AD, and that was the destruction of the temple. From that period of time, no other prophecy remains to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. Okay? So just to make you aware of that. So that means the trumpet can sound before I get through preaching this morning. And some of you are saying, God, let it be. You know, I don't want to have to sit through another one of those sermons. Henry. But uh, it could happen. That's the, James, why are you laughing so hard? You see? He's, your face betrays your emotions there. All right. The next thing are the events happening during the tribulation. Anthony's grinning pretty big too. Um, 6 through 19. That's the opening of the seals, the seven trumpets. Uh, the seven seals, the seven bowls, and I got the order mixed up. But that's the things that are during the tribulation period. Then the next section is after the trip. That's chapters 20 uh, through 22. And it's divided into several sections. The kingdom, the white throne judgment, the destruction uh, of the earth, and the new heavens and a new earth. Okay? So let's go to the next slide. Is that back projector working at all? Go ahead and get that working so I can see. If not, that's okay. So, uh, so, just a moment here about the rapture. This little thing about the rapture. Some people are so opposed to the idea of the rapture. And think it's like such a preposterous idea. But you do realize there's precedent in Scripture. Uh, in Genesis 5, we read that Enoch was taken up to heaven. He didn't die. In 2 Kings 2, we find that Elijah was taken up to heaven. 
In Acts 1, uh, verse 9, Jesus Christ ascended up to heaven. Revelation 12, verse 5 describes that event. And it says that Christ was called up. Same word as harpazo, which, which is the word for rapture. In Acts chapter 8, Philip was called up. He was called away. In 2 Corinthians, harpazo again. Paul is called up to the third heaven to, uh, to, to, uh, to see the things that are, that are in heaven. And in John, excuse me, in Revelation 4, we see John is taken to heaven. Revelation 11, turn with me there real quick if you, if you want to follow me. Revelation 11, verse 12. If we got a handheld mic, the man anywhere. Since James is such a comedian, we're going to let him pass the participation this morning. I believe in rewarding people according to their works. It's like a good <laughs> Love you, James. You're a good friend. All right. James, you want to read and talk real loud in here because we're recording this for our folks on the podcast and folks on Facebook. There's tens of twenties listening to us right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> read. Hopefully more than that. But, um, would you read verse 12? heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Alright, thank you. These are the two witnesses in the tribulation period. They're killed. God raises them up back to life. And what does he say to them? James just read it. It's open book test. Come up hither. Come up hither. Same thing John heard, right? You say, well, Henry, why are you making such a big deal about it? I don't know. I'm sure I had a point. I'm just kidding. Uh, go with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Why does this not look right in my Bible? It's because I was in 2 Thessalonians. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a difference. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant. And that doesn't mean stupid, but it means unaware. Brethren, concerning them which are asleep, or those who die in the Lord, that you sorrow not, even as those which have no hope. See, Christians, when they die, we still have sadness. But it's not a, it's not a hopeless sadness. And, and Paul's going to tell us why. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. If we believe he died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus. Now sleep here is a euphemism for death. That's because Christians never die. That's why he uses the euphemism for it, sleep. In Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, I believe that's us, Unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or go before those who have slept, uh, fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, notice Jesus is not sending some lower level uh, ambassador here. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with what? A shout. I just wonder if it will be come up hither. I wouldn't go to a doctrine on it, but I just wonder. That's the same thing John heard. It's the same thing that the two witnesses hear. I just wonder if Jesus is going to say, now he probably won't say hither because he probably didn't speak the king's English. He'll probably say come up here or whatever language he speaks. I don't know, but we'll understand him. It'll be a clarion call. Um, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the what? Trumpet of God. It's a good sound of a trumpet, right? And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord on the earth. Is that what it says? In the air. Why is that important? Because the post-trib guys are going to have us meeting Jesus on the earth. But the Bible says, Paul says, that we're going to meet him in the air. Okay? It's, it's, not, a, it's not a trivial uh, uh, discussion. 
And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, the rapture should be a comforting doctrine. And if it's not, then I would ask the question, then why not? Either we're not saved, or whoever's preaching it's not preaching it right. Because if it's taught properly, the rapture is a comforting doctrine. It's, it's, it's supposed to bring us joy. And, I, and I'm getting a, a little bit irritated because there's voices all over the internet trying to tell me that I'm going to go through the tribulation period. And, and if you've ever read the, 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 the tribulation period... You know the Christians are not kept safe during that time. They're going to be killed. They're going to, uh, and the wrath of God's being poured out. And my Bible says that God's not appointed me to wrath. That Jesus has taken the wrath for me. And, and so uh, to tell me that I'm going to have to go through that, that, that Jesus, you know, Jesus is going to meet the church as a bridegroom. He's coming on the unbelievers as a thief, but not on me. He's coming on me as a bridegroom. And I don't believe God's going to beat his bride up before he marries her. Amen. Amen. I don't believe that the wedding is going to take place at the same day of a slaughter. That's just me, you know. Maybe your wedding day, if you felt like a slaughter, I don't know. I've officiated some weddings that didn't go so well. Families are on different sides and nobody talked to each other. And I said, well, we'll be doing some marriage counseling even in a few months. But anyway, anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, let's go to John. John chapter 14. You see, Henry, you haven't preached any out of your text this morning. I know that. But, but I'm building a foundation here. We're going to pick up steam. John 14. Now this is the upper room discourse, which took place after the Olivet Discourse. So for you to look for the rapture in the Olivet Discourse, you're searching in all the wrong places. Because it's not there. And we spent months talking about that, right? So this, this is old hat for you. John 14, verse 1. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions... Or rooms or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Look at that last phrase. That where I am, there you may be also. The people that believe in post-trip, they think it reads, where you are, there I will be also. That's not how it reads though, is it? Where is Jesus right now? He said the right hand of the Father in heaven, right? And if he says he's going to receive me unto himself, then where he is, there I'm going to be. Where am I going to have to go? Heaven. All right. Now go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. You say, Henry, I know all that stuff. Well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad you do. Never hurts to review. Say, so why should I care? You should care because that's the next thing on God's calendar. <laughs> Alright, James. I gave you a little break there. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, if you read verses 50 through 53. First Corinthians 15, 50 through 53. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Alright, thank you. Notice again the sound of the trumpet uh, at the last trumpet. Let's go to the next slide. I'm going to make you real happy right now. There's only one more slide after this. I'm not almost finished, but there's only one more slide. People say, well, Revelation 4. Go back to Revelation 4 now. Now, verse 1, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was literally standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard was as a what? A trumpet, which said to me, Come up here. And I will show you the things which must be hereafter. Now, see what people 
And I made the mistake a few weeks ago. I said, this is the rapture. This is not the rapture. This is a type of the rapture. You understand the Bible's full of types and shadows. Like when Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, that was a type of the, of the cross. So um, this is a type of the rapture. And I want to refer you to the screen up here. And I want you to see the similarities from John's experience and, and our experience. Uh, we'll hear a verbal command. 1 Thessalonians 4. The destination will be where? Heaven. John 14. Um, and 1 Thessalonians. We will hear what? Trumpet. It will happen how long? In a moment. The Greek word there is atomos. An atom is the most in, in uh, smallest, divisible, whatever, um, unit in the universe. I probably said that wrong. Some scientist is saying, you fool. You talk about the things you know. I don't, but the atom is like the smallest thing. And the idea here is that when the rapture happens, it's going to happen so quick, you're barely even going to know what happened, I think. We, we see the movies sometimes. We see these movies, it's like, you picture Christopher Reeve, right? Y'all remember Superman? Some like, who's Christopher Reeve? We picture it that way, don't we? That's how it's depicted in the pictures. But the Bible says it's in a moment. Not even in the blink of an eye, preacher, but in the twinkling of an eye, which is even faster. So it's just going, which is good news for me, Brother Ronnie, because I'm scared of heights. I don't even like going to chairlift, you know, in Gatlinburg or wherever, you know, ghost town in the sky. But and so that was always a source of anxiety for me. I thought, Lord, I really want to go. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to that trip on that giant escalator in the sky. And God says, Don't worry, you know, it'll be just just like a moment. And I'm gonna have a glorified body, so I ain't gonna be scared of nothing anyway, right? Amen. All right. Um, it's going to happen in a moment. And also to come up here, same cry that the two witnesses hear when they've been resurrected. Okay. So again, I wouldn't build a doctrine on it, but I just wonder the voice that we hear when the trumpet sounds, will it say come up here? I don't know. I'm inclined to believe that. Okay, so let's, let's just go crawl through the text back in Revelation really quick here. <coughs> we notice that there's a throne... The King James says, said to heaven, they're standing. It means permanence. No matter what you see going on in the world, you understand that God is in control, my friend. So you don't have to wring your hands uh, in anxiety and, and wonder um, with all the chaos that's going on around us. Now, chapter 4 is going to deal with the Father. Chapter 5 and his role in, in creation. Chapter 5 will deal with the Lamb and his role in redemption. So they're... Uh, be mindful of that as we go through uh, this discussion here. Now, John, the word throne is used 14 times in this chapter. Which I think is significant. But it shows that it's a major theme in this section of the book. And it shows that God is in control of history. History is his story. History is his story. Now... Notice the language that John uses to describe the one. He uses like, words like like and as. Because we can never with our finite mind try to describe God Almighty. Can you imagine John being transported into the future, outside of time and space, and seeing God Almighty sitting on the throne? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an awesome thing. I'm going to tell you what. God is nothing like Morgan Freeman. God is nothing like George Burns. God is so awesome and majestic and holy that I almost tremble to even talk about him, preacher. I almost tremble to even talk about him. But he's going to, so John's going to use descriptions like like an ass. Because that's about the best you can do to try to describe an infinite God. He, the one that sat upon us looked like a... Now, the King James says Jasper and a sardine storm. The sardine is named after the city of Sardis. Does that ring a bell? We just got through studying that. The Jasper is not like... From everything I've read, the Jasper is not like the modern Jasper. But in antiquity, 
The jasper was like a diamond. It was clear as crystal, refracting all the light, uh, beautiful colors. And, and the sardine storm, stone, some of your Bibles are going to say ruby, but, um, but it's a blood red. It's a blood red stone. Look with me, if you will, in Exodus 28. That's the second book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus. Look at Exodus 28. I want you to see something really cool. instructions about the breastplate that the high priest is going to wear. When the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he's going to wear this breastplate that's, that's uniquely uh, decorated. Um, James, would you read 15 through 29? Exodus 28, 15 through 29. And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work. And after the work of the ephod, thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, and of fine uh, twined linen shalt thou make it. Four square it shall be being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. And thou shalt set it. And thou shalt set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. And the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a liger, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel. Jasper, and they shall be set in gold in their enclosures. And the stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve, according to their names, like the engravings of the singer. Everyone with his name shall be according to the twelve tribes. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate chains at the ends of wreathen works of pure gold. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate two rings of gold, and shalt put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And thou shalt put the two wreathen chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate. And the other two ends of the two wreathen chains thou shalt fasten in the two ounces, and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod before it. And thou shalt make two rings of gold Thou shalt put them upon the two ends of the breastplate in the border thereof, which is in the side of the ephod emerald. And the two other rings of gold thou shalt make, and shalt put them on the two sides of the ephod underneath, toward the forepart thereof, over against the other coupling thereof, above the curious girdle of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastplate by the rings thereof unto the rings of the ephod with the lace of blue, that it may be above the curious girdle of the ephod, and that the breastplate be not loose from the ephod. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel and the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. All right, thank you. You didn't ever think you would use the phrase curious girdle in a sentence, did you? It's amazing. But here the high priest is going to bear, notice James read in verse 29, he's going to bear the names of the children of Israel upon his what? His heart. Upon his breastplate, upon his heart. These, he represents the people of God which are near and dear to the heart of God. And I want you to notice the order of the stones, if you will. If you notice... Um, the first stone in verse 17 is what? A sardius. Okay. 
And the last stone is what in verse 20? A jasper. And remember with the, uh, the throne, the appearance is like a what? A sardine stone and a jasper stone. The first and the last of the high priest's uh, breastplate stones. And they represent the, tw the 12 tribes. The Sardius, the first one, represents Reuben. You know what his name means? Behold a son. The last stone represents Benjamin, Benjamin. And that's the diamond. And it means son of my right hand. Behold a son, son of my right hand. You and I are accepted because of God's one and only son. And when he sees us, he sees us in him. Hallelujah. In Jesus Christ. The marvelous love of God. The precision of scripture. Even in its typology. Alright. Back to Revelation. By the way Reuben. Behold a son. That would represent the incarnation. Benjamin. Son of my right hand. That would represent the ascension of Christ. Where he is right now at the right hand of the father. Making intercession for you and for me. Alright. Now, what else do we see in verse 3, Revelation 4, verse 3? There's another stone that we see. It's an emerald. But there's a rainbow. You see that? Now, who does that remind you of from the Old Testament? Noah. God's covenant with Noah. Now, in Noah's case, it was a sign of the covenant between God and Noah and humanity that he would never flood the world again with, uh, with water. This time it will be with fire. But we see that God... Before the storm. Okay? In Noah's day, the rainbow was after the storm. But this one, the rainbow is before the storm. But is it like any rainbow we've ever seen? No, on two points. Number one is perfectly round. Perfectly circular. When we see a rainbow, what do we typically see? Like an arch, right? Semicircle. <clears throat> Has anybody ever seen a rainbow from an airplane? All right, we've got a couple that, that have seen a rainbow from an airplane. And I didn't believe it when I first heard it. Somebody told me that from an airplane, a rainbow is a perfect circle. And, and I thought to myself, well, that, I don't know if that's true or not. And I, and I thought, well, who can I ask that's been on a plane? And the first thing that came to my mind was Misty. And she said, I've been on over 100 flights. And I said, Misty, have you ever seen a rainbow from an airplane? In, your, in all your travels? She said, no, I never have. And I said, well, pay attention next time. <laughs> and she was on her way back from Iceland just a few weeks ago. She was on her way back from Iceland, and I think I'm telling the story right. She woke up, looked out the window of the plane, and there she saw a rainbow, and it was a perfect circle from the end. The perfect circle. And I had a picture of it, but it was so distorted it wouldn't do it justice up here. And I have avoided, I have purposely avoided images up here. Just like John kind of purposely avoids it. But this is a perfect circle, like a halo around. And what do we notice different about this rainbow? What, it's, what color is it? You ever seen an emerald rainbow? Maybe a Lucky Charm cereal or something, I don't know. But not in real life. This is a different kind. But I believe it shows the love of God. And the patience of God. And the mercy of God. Amen. God, God is a loving God. He really is. Because we're going to read about some terrible stuff. But right before all that begins, God reminds us, I love people. And God does keep his promise. He's not going to destroy the whole world with a flood again. Alright. We get to verse 4. Round about the throne, there's an interesting group of people. 24 seats. Now, the King James says seat there. If you've got any other translation, it's going to say throne. And the Greek word there is thronos, which means throne. And I understand, I think, why the King James translated it as seat. is because they wanted to show that these thrones were subservient to the other. But if you're going to accurately translate the scriptures, you need to go right from the Greek. And just about every other time this is translated, it's translated as throne. And that's what it is. And these are 24 thrones. And on these thrones, 
there were four and twenty elders sitting, and they've they've got clothes of white raiment, and they've got crowns of gold. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. Verse 5. Out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunderings and voices. This is very reminiscent of Mount Sinai. When God came down on Mount Sinai, the Bible says in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 that there were lightnings and thunderings. Now this is a clue, and I thank our dear friend Jay Vernon McGee for pointing this out to me. This shows us also that a change has taken place. Right now, the throne of God is a throne of grace. Right now, you and I can come boldly to a throne of grace to obtain mercy. I think Brother Lynn even said that in the, in the narrative today. And it, God, there are no accidents. We didn't corroborate on that. God, right now, the throne of God is a throne of grace. And you can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in the time of need. Hallelujah. Right now, it is. But now we see the throne is the throne of judgment, isn't it? Lightning and thunder, which are symbols, symbolic of judgment. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, there's a lot of folks that don't believe in the Trinity. Or they believe in Jesus only. And they got a real problem. Because in Revelation 4 and 5, we've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost all in the same place. Amen. That's pretty interesting, isn't it, for those that don't believe in the Trinity. Just like the rapture, the word rapture is not in the Bible, but the concept is there. The catching away, the harpazo. The word trinity is not in the Bible, but the concept is there throughout the scriptures, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So, interesting thing too here. Notice there's seven lamps, but there's no lampstands. Now, going back to chapters 2 and 3, who do the lampstands represent? The churches, right? So, wouldn't it make sense that the lamp would be with the lampstand? So why is the image of the lampstand no longer there? And by the way, where's the church? Where's the church? After this, Johnson, after this. The church is mentioned 19 times in chapters 2 and 3. 1, 2, and 3. After that, no more mention of the church until Jesus signs off in Revelation 22. And then it's just like a benediction. So where did the church go? Hmm. I believe we're looking at the church in heaven. But I believe the, the, the symbols have changed. No longer are we going to see um, seven lampstands, but we're going to see 24 elders. Okay? The seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit. And this, is, and this should also clue us in that a different dispensation has kicked in. Right now, the Holy Spirit dwells in the midst of believers, right? In the churches. But now the Holy Spirit is in the throne room of God. Now that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit will not be operating during the tribulation. Because there will be many people who will be saved. But it will be salvation like it was under the Old Covenant. Because it's under Old Covenant dispensation. The 70 weeks of Daniel. And we'll talk about that before we get to the, the uh, chapter 6. Alright. Verse 6. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass. Like unto crystal. That's amazing. Um, go with me. Hold your place there. Go with me to Genesis. Genesis 1. And James, if you'll read verses 6 and 7. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. So even in the beginning, there's a firmament above. There's there's a there's a sea, if you will. Now go with me to uh, Exodus. imagery here. You've got the, 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 the stones and the breastplate of the high priest. You've got the seven lamps. Remember there's seven lamps in the temple in the, the Old Testament tabernacle. So there's, it's a lot of temple and tabernacle imagery. Same thing here with Sea of Glass. Um, did I tell you where to go? Exodus 24? Yeah. Alright, James, would you, would you read verse 10? 
they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Or in other words, a sea of glass. Uh, so, what does that speak of? I believe it speaks of God's absolute perfection, His absolute holiness. Can anybody give me a definition of holiness in one word? Or maybe two words? Perfect. Perfect. Set apart. That's the difference between the God of creation, the God of the Bible, and all of the pantheon of other gods. Other religions, God is just a part of nature. You know, he's a spirit or a rock or a tree or whatever. But in the Bible, God is distinct from his creation because he's a creator. He's the uncaused cause. He's absolutely separate and holy from his creation. Now, it's interesting. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, the Bible says there's no more sea. No more sea. And I know we like to think about heaven as being a beach or something. And that's, I guess that's disappointing to you. But there'll be plenty of things that God has for you to enjoy. Uh, but there's not going to be any more sea. So all those songs about is there fishing in heaven and stuff, I, you know, maybe there will be. Maybe we'll fish out of the river of life. I don't know. But um, all right, back to Revelation four. Now we see there's a sea of glass in verse six, and there's also now the King James says beast here, and that's kind of unfortunate. The Greek word is zoon, which means living creature, and so almost every other translation is going to translate it as living creature. And I think that's probably the best because beast has a negative connotation, especially when we talk about the Antichrist. And also it gives you the idea of an animalistic kind of thing. Now these living creatures, we're told in verse uh, uh, 6, that they full of eyes, and that speaks of intelligence. It speaks of uh, eyes always are a symbol of intelligence in the Bible or omniscience. Um, we're all seeing. Um, verse 7, the first beast or first living creature was like a lion. The second was a calf. The third, um, man. And the fourth, an eagle. And there's all kinds of conjectures about who they, what these represent. And I'm just going to be honest with you and say I don't rightly know. There's people that are a lot smarter than me. And, it, and that, that's a big number. <laughs> but people a lot smarter than me are under, are undecided about what they mean. Some say it represents the four Gospels. Matthew represents the lion, lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark represents the ox, the servant. Uh, Luke, son of man, represents the man. And then John represents the eagle. I think, if I, if, if I were, if you're asking me to take a position here, I think the emphasis on chapter 4 is on creation. And we've already seen God's covenant with Noah. And remember, God made a covenant not just with Noah, but with all the animals the domesticated animals and the wild animals and human beings. So I believe that these represent the highest orders of creation. The lion being the, the king of the wild animals, the, um, the calf being the king of the domestic, domesticated animals, mankind as being the, the gem of all creation, and the eagle being transcendent. John presents Jesus as God, the most majestic of the flying uh, animals. So I think they represent the, uh, because the focus is on creation, I believe that, this, that they are symbolic of all of the highest order of creation that are praising God. You do understand, Paul says in Romans 8, that the whole creation is waiting to be redeemed. Yes. Not just human beings. <laughs> when Adam sinned, the whole earth is under suffering, uh, suffering the penalty, not just humans. Okay. And I don't have time to develop all that, but that's why I think what I think. And we can agree to disagree. Now, the four beasts. Now, some say these are the beasts of Ezekiel 1. Because Ezekiel sees a similar vision, but it's not identical. And similarity does not mean uh, identical. Some connect them with Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, uh, he sees the Lord. Uh, his throne is high and lifted up. And notice in, in verse 8, it says, They have six wings. And they're full of eyes within. And they're saying something. Grace, grace, grace. Love, love, love. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Is that what they're saying? No. Holy, holy, holy. The supreme attribute of our God. 
And don't ever forget it. He's holy. God says, be ye holy for I am holy. He is altogether holy. Now, again, I wouldn't make a big, I wouldn't try to fight with people over it. But the fact that holy, holy, holy is repeated three times to me speaks of the Trinity. Again, not making a big thing of it, but I, I, I think. And notice, the Lord God Almighty, He was, and He is, and He is to come. He's the God of the past. He's the God of right now. And He's the God that will be forever and ever. And soon and very soon, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 9 says, When those beasts give honor, glory, honor, and thanks. When was the last time you thanked God? When was the last time you said, Well, I thank Him every time I eat. Well, that's great. You ever thank Him for the air that you breathe? Because you're breathing borrowed air. Every day that you wake up and your eyes open is a gift from God. Everything. If you, if you can have the ability to, to have your senses, you know, if you have some measure of health, you say, well, my health is not good. It could always be worse. I don't care what it is. It could always be worse. We have so much to be thankful for. And we need to sit on the throne. And he sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. Now, when those beasts give glory, it cues, in verse 10, the 24 elders. <coughs> now, uh, I'm going to do a teaching on the 24 elders this Wednesday night. If you can be here, you don't want to miss it. Because I'm going to show you within a, a, a 1% of a margin for error that these guys, who, who they are, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because it's not a trivial issue identifying the 24 elders. But these 24 elders, they do something. Verse 10. They fall down. Now in verse 9, uh, most translations say when, but some will say whenever. And that's the proper rendering. Because we're not just going to cast our crowns one time. We're going to do it over and over and over. Heaven is going to be full of praise to God. They're going to cast their crowns before the throne. All right, let's get to the last slide. Identity of the 24 elders. One of the predominant views is that they're angels. A lot of commentators say they're angels. But there's a problem with that. Number one, angels are never depicted as seated in God's presence. Uh, when Gabriel appeared uh, in the New Testament, he said, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Um, angels are never promised thrones. Guess who is seated? In Ephesians, I read that Christ has raised us up together and we are seated together with him where? In heavenly places. You ever read that? We're seated in heavenly places. Number two, angels are never depicted as wearing crowns. Now in verse 10 of Revelation, the word crown there is Stephanus. It's not diadem. You say, why does that matter? A diadem crown is one who's uh, worn because he's royal by nature, as a.k.a. a celestial being. But this crown is for an overcomer. Angels didn't overcome, are not having to overcome. They're, they're confirmed in their righteousness. It's, it's impossible for the holy angels to sin now. But the overcomer crown uh, is for us. Angels are not referred to as elders. Anywhere in the, in the Old Testament. Now remember that in order for something to, uh, to help us understand the, the idioms of the scriptures, that's very important. We are not left, as uh, Wolver said, to our sanctified imagination. We cannot just pull something out of nowhere. Okay. Now, in Ezekiel's vision of the throne of God, in Daniel's vision of the throne of God, in Isaiah's mission of the throne of God, there are some common themes. You have the fathers there, 
Sometimes he's called the Ancient of Days. You have the Son or the Son of Man. You have the four living creatures. You also have a myriad of angels that are there. But one group that you won't find in the Old Testament vision of the throne of God are the 24 elders. And so that begs the question, where did they come from? And why are they here? So if you're going to say they're an angel, then you're going to have to find me an Old Testament text that shows me 24 angels sitting on thrones with crowns. I'm going to need that to come up with that symbol. And you won't be able to find one. You know why? Because it ain't there. <laughs> However, there is a point of similarity. Angels do wear white robes. We wear white robes also. Notice in Revelation 3, 5, that the overcomers in Sardis are promised what? White raiment, white clothes. In Revelation 2, verse 10, to the church at Smyrna, they are promised what? A crown of life. Guess what the Greek word is there? It's not diadem, it's Stephanus. Revelation 3, 11, Jesus tells the church of Philadelphia, take heed that no man take your what? Crown, Stephanus. <clears throat> Remember I told you that there's 24 thrones that they see? Look with me in Revelation 3. James, you want to read verse 21? I don't want you to go to sleep over there. I'll give you too much of a break. <laughs> to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in His throne. Oh dear. So Jesus promised overcomers that they're going to do what? Sit on thrones. So I don't know. Let's connect some dots here. Jesus promised the overcomer that they'd be clothed in white. Jesus promised the overcomer that they would wear crowns. Jesus promised the overcomer that they would sit on thrones. Oh, I don't know. Could it be that the 24 elders are the church that Jesus promised would have those three things? You say, well, how did they get there? I'm glad you asked, Henry. Because if you look at Revelation 3, Jesus made a promise. James, read Revelation 3.10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world. Try them that dwell upon the earth. You got a promise from your Savior. The tribulation is for the earth dwellers who are always unbelievers in the book of Revelation. But he made a promise. And he didn't just say, I'm going to keep you through the tribulation. And by the way, if it's a promise just to be kept safe through the tribulation, then that promise falls flat. Because all throughout the book of Revelation, saints are killed. So if it's a promise to keep you safe through the tribulation period, that's a, that's a bad deal. Okay, Because Gentiles are being killed. The only ones we see protected really are the Jewish people. 144,000 and two witnesses and so forth. They're, they're guaranteed protection. No Gentiles are promised any protection um, of that. But, but the key thing here is, we don't even have to split hairs about that. Okay? The key thing is that Jesus said, he didn't just say, I'm going to keep you through the, the time or, 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 or keep you from the time, but he said, I'm going to keep you from the hour of the time. You see that? The very time period itself. Do you see that? Yeah. I will keep you from the hour. That's going to come on, not Jerusalem, not Spain, Portugal, Peachland, but who? The whole world. What's he talking about? The tribulation, guys. So in my mind, Revelation 4 shows me that Jesus has kept all those promises that he made. He's going to keep you from the hour. You're going to wear a white robe. You're going to wear a crown. And you're going to sit on a throne, by golly. Hallelujah. You're going to sit on a throne because he promised you. That you would. Also, this number 24. 
People say, well, it's the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, it doesn't say 12 and 12, though, does it? It says 24, right? And John knows how to count. John knows the difference. He doesn't say, okay, add 2, multiply by 3, subtract 4. He says there's 24. Now, there's only one instance in the whole Bible, my goodness, where the number 24 is used in the whole Bible. And it's in 1 Chronicles 24. And in that passage, David, King David, divides the priesthood into 24 divisions. You say, well, Henry, what does that matter? I'm glad you asked. In Revelation 1, we have a promise. Verse 6. James, why don't you read that? Revelation 1, 6. We're coming in for a landing here, guys. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father, and He'll be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. Christ has made us kings and what? Priests. Our kingdom of priests. The imagery here of the 24 is the imagery of priesthood. Now, the church is unique. These can't be Old Testament saints, by the way. In the Old Testament, you could be a king or you could be a priest, but you couldn't be both. If you were a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. If you were a king, you had to be from the tribe of what? Judah. There were only three exceptions in the Bible. You're going to get excited when you find out who the third one is. First one is Melchizedek. You find him in Genesis. He's a king and a priest. The second one is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a prophet, priest, and king. You know who the third one is? Look at your neighbor and say it's you. You and I are, have the unique distinction. Peter says we're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And these, these priests sing a song of redemption. Last verse. Revelation 4, the last verse. This is going to be our invitation here in just a minute. I asked Sherry and Ronnie if they would sing this for us. But, uh, and we're all going to sing it together. We need to get some practice. Sing. Do you notice all this corporate worship going on in heaven? Notice everybody's worshiping together. Now how is it that folks, some folks think that they can serve God best by not ever coming to church? But it baffles me. Now I know people have health problems. People have concerns about things, uh, immunity issues and so forth. But there's a lot of able-bodied folks that don't come to church simply because they don't see the need for it. I think Mark prayed a prayer about those who are indifferent. I can understand the unsaved being indifferent. I don't understand Christians being indifferent. That's one of the signs of salvation is you want to be around God's people. You want to hear God's... It ain't going to be strange. Some folks that think they can be a Christian and never go to church... And all of a sudden they get to heaven and they got to worship around a bunch of people. It's going to take them time to get oriented, isn't it? It's going to be like, wow, I ain't used to this. This is strange. And it's loud, too. We'll talk about that next week. This is the quietest world you'll ever live in. All right, more on that later. They said, you're worthy, O Lord. You're worthy. You're holy. To receive glory and honor and power. Because you did something. What did God do? He created all things. Is that right? He created that beautiful beach that you love to go to. He created that mountain. He created that sunset. He created that sunrise. He created all the beautiful animals in creation. But best of all, Genesis tells us that out of the ground, God formed man. When he breathed into him. And he became a living soul. In the likeness of God, folks, you and I are made in the image of God. When I look around, that's why Satan hates you so bad. It's because when he looks around, he sees the image of God. He hates it. You're the creator of God. You're worthy of worship. Look, if God never does anything else for you, if he never answers another prayer, the fact that He created you is reason enough to praise Him. Thank you, God. He made you. He knows you better than anybody. He knows you better than your spouse, your mom and your daddy, your children. He knows every hair on your head is numbered. He knows everything about you. 
He knows all of your likes, your dislikes. He knows your taste. He knows what kind of music you like to listen to. He knows what color, he knows what your favorite colors are. He knows exactly what your voice sounds like. Nobody sounds just like you. Nobody has a retinal pattern just like you. You're a designer's original. And I want you to see this. It says, for you've created all things. But that's not all it says. It says, for your pleasure they are. And they were created. You were created for God's pleasure. To enjoy you. Now we talk a lot about enjoying God, don't we? And I love to come together with God's people and sing praises. But the Bible says God created us for His enjoyment. Now, those of us that are parents, we understand that the only thing that surpasses that joy is being a grandparent. And there's no greater delight, and I know Andy and Leanne will attest to this because we share, we share a young one together, is to see that baby boy Watching him learn and watching him talk and, and say different things and, and him say, I love you, Shug. Love you, Boom Pie. Love you, Papa. Love you, Mom and Dad. That's the greatest joy in the world. Love you, Lolo. Whenever Lolo's around, he never talks about Papa. <laughs> and his mom and daddy just get so much enjoyment. It's just so much enjoyment to watch them learn everything. You know, God looks at you the way we look at our grandbabies, but even better. Some of you think God's against you. You think, God, why is life so hard? You understand God knows what it's like to lose an only son. He knows what it's like. He's felt your pain. God has entered into your suffering. Jesus was tempted in all ways, just like you are. God created you for his enjoyment. Oh, my. You know what makes heaven heaven? God. What makes hell hell is the absence of God. Not just the torment. I mean, that's bad enough. But never seen. You realize that every good thing in your life, every good thing in creation comes from the hand of God. That's what James said. Every good gift, every perfect thing comes from above. Your favorite food came from God. The things that you like to smell, the, thing, the art that you enjoy. All of that came from God. And He created it for your enjoyment, but ultimately for His enjoyment. You know, that's part of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Is that we are, we, part of our responsibility is to enjoy God forever. David said, I will be satisfied while I wait with your likeness. Hallelujah. At your right hand, there are what? Pleasures forevermore. Would you stand? Now we're going to get some practice because we're going to be singing this song. Who knows? I don't know. Only, G only God knows the day or the hour. But soon and very soon, we're going to hear that trumpet. And the dead in Christ is going to rise. And we who are ready and, re and, and living for the Lord, we're going to be raptured. And we're going to sing this song. We're going to sing this song. You're worthy, oh God. I don't care what you're going through this morning. I want you to sing this song, and I want you to sing it from your heart. And I want you to sing it because He is a worthy creator. Now, now, you may be here today, and you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel in less than 30 seconds. Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross according to the Scripture. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And the Bible says that if we believe in our heart, we have faith in Him, we confess with our mouth, we repent of our sins. We admit to God that we're a sinner. And we simply call on the name of the Lord. The Bible says we can be saved. And we must be saved. We must be born again. There's none good. No, not one. So if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, while we're singing this song of worthiness, you can join in that song too. Because even if you're not saved, you've been created in His image. But guess what? He did not create you to go to hell. If you go there, you'll go there against God's will. The Bible says that the hell was made for the devil and for his angels. It was prepared for them. If you go there, it will be against God's wishes because God created you for his pleasure. God wants to enjoy you in his presence forever. Okay? 
So while we sing, would you come? Let's sing, guys.